You're listening to Ocean Currents, a podcast brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary. This radio program was originally broadcast on KWMR in Point Reyes Station, California. Thanks for listening. Welcome to another edition of Ocean Currents. I'm your host, Jennifer Stuck. On this show, we talk with scientists, educators, explorers, policymakers, harvesters, ocean enthusiasts, adventurers, authors, and advocates, all uncovering and learning about the mysterious and vital part of our planet, the blue ocean. I bring this show to you monthly on KWMR from NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, one of four national marine sanctuaries in California, all working to protect unique and biologically diverse ecosystems. So today we're going to dive into the world of seaweed, better known as algae in the marine biologist world. Today we're going to be talking about harvesting seaweed from the shores. My guest in the studio is Heidi Herman. And Heidi is the co-owner of Strong Arm Farm in Healdsburg, Sonoma County. This is a one-and-a-half-acre vegetable and herb farm and vends at the local Healdsburg Farmer's Market and some local restaurants. And Heidi expanded her offering to seaweed, which she doesn't grow, obviously, at the farm, but harvests it from the wild coasts of Sonoma County. Heidi has a strong horticultural background with degrees from Cal Poly University and Sonoma State University, focusing on horticulture, pest management, nursery production, and experimental agriculture education. And she has worked internationally with a program called WOLF, which is the Worldwide Opportunities on Organic Farms. So welcome, Heidi, to Ocean Currents. Thank you for having me. So nice to have you here. I have a lot of interest in today's topic as I've been exploring the coast of Sonoma and Marin, just enjoying the tide pools and wanting to learn more about harvesting algae. So I'm really excited to explore the topic with you today. First, you have a successful farm going at Strong Arm Farm. What drew you to expand to seaweed harvesting? Right. Um, it's it's an interest of mine. So it was, it's hobby turned lucrative. Um, I was vending at the Occidental Farmer's Market at the time and would collect seaweed by, for myself and with friends. And, and I brought a little bit in a little bowl because it was fresh that day. And I was vending at the market the next day. And some customers were like, oh, could you get me some? I'd like to come next week. And could you bring some more? And just out of customer demand. And I'm like, oh, gosh, sure, I could bring a little bit. And like, oh, I need a container for it. So packaging and a little label. And and there was, yeah, customers were asking for it. And I was the only one with it. So heck, you know, that's a, that's a niche market. And as a farmer, you know, you're looking for that exactly. Um, what what can you add that's unique to your booth that'll draw customers in and what's what's not being offered yet in that region or that specific market? So how do you know which species? Because I know when I've been exploring the intertidal, there are some really stinky color, stinky algaes. And there's three different colors, by the way. There's three main groups of algae. There's greens, reds, and browns. And I've just noticed every time some red has ended up in my back seat or whatever, the car stinks within minutes. Yeah, some of them do stink more. Also, also when they're, um, I don't know, cut from the plant and they're washed up on shore, they start decaying really quickly, um, especially if the sun is out. So definitely cut them from the growing plants or the algae at the, at the ocean. Um, there are a lot of kinds, and it's it's like knowing land plants, like which ones are ferns and which ones are you know, mosses and oak trees and just these little identifiers that can differentiate their genetics. Did you take a class to get experienced with this or how did what resources did you use to become knowledgeable about collecting algae? 
Yeah, I started first as just going out with some friends that were running a little macrobiotic food restaurant, and I enjoyed that food style. And we went out. I was on the San Luis Obispo coast. Um, and then when I moved up here to Sonoma County, yes, yeah, some other friends were at the California School of Herbal Studies, and they took a class. And she's like, oh, come on out with us. And I learned this new skill at our coast side. Oh, great. And so this was about 10 years ago. And, and so I tagged along once, and that was t- totally interesting. And our coastline was stunning, and there was so much. And so I took a, a one-day course there, too. It was just an evening lecture. Um, and then you could go out with, uh, with the instructor the following, that following weekend. So when you collect algae, do you eat it right away? How do you preserve it? Yeah, the part of the processing, we, we actually, this year, we tripled our harvest cause due to demand. Um, we did about 1,600 pounds um, in total of the, between the four or five different varieties that we collect. Um, there's a lot of other varieties out there, so it's knowing which ones specifically to harvest, and, and some we don't touch at all. Um, whether they taste bad or they have a not bad per se, but they aren't used in in recipes, they have a, f- a peculiar texture in the mouth. But yeah, once you harvest, the process of of collecting it is um, cutting it from the plants on low tide days and putting it in bags and, and hauling it out of the ocean. It's it's quite an effort because they're they're heavy. It's just like carrying water. So it's you know backpacks. We use outer frame backpacks because it's really drippy as well. And so that kind of contains it off off your body a little bit. So it's lugging it up a cliff and then out a bluff, maybe a mile or so, and then up to the cars and then the drive back home. And then we have a walk-in cooler because our farm does that for vegetables. So we store it there and at around 40 degrees and try to process it as quick as possible because it does age readily. It does break down and that's the it starts smelling and it gets even more slimy <laughs> and it just breaks down the nutritional quality. So we try within 24 hours a day, a day of harvesting or the next day. We, it's our solid goal to process all of it. And yeah, that process is... Um, it has sands and other little critters that tagged along that that really – the seaweed is vital to them for food and a hiding source when the tide is out. So we rinse it in different basins, a triple rinse. And we use white basins so you can tell if there's still sand coming out and what discoloration. And so a triple rinse and then put it on screens in this kind of secluded part of the garden where there's not um, – nothing else will get dusty on it. And then the sun dries it really quickly. It's 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 June, May and June. So the sun is at optimal kind of height in the sky, and it's a good usually around a nice heat wave, and it dries within three four hours. Really impressive and handy. And then it's it's eighty five percent water, so it really dries down to this, and it, it blackens as it dries. So all the seaweeds turn this dark colored. Unfortunately, because to maintain that those beautiful colors that they as they were an iridescence as they were in the ocean would be. Lovely. So do you mainly only harvest in May and June when you have those hot temperatures for drying? Um, though, yes. Yes and no. We do only harvest in those months. But the reason is because that's when the low tides are. And our style of harvesting is only from the shore. So we just go when the tide is fully receded. And the section of coast we go out, it's, it's about a, I don't know, a quarter mile of, of coastline that gets exposed during that time. And so it's a lot of it's packed. Every surface has algae on it. And so it's really IDing where the ones, the varieties that we seek, where they are in that tidal zone. And so we'll start at the furthest out one, right where the water line. And then as the tide is moving in, 
and we'll collect different varieties as it's kind of moving in. And you always got to look over your shoulder because there is definitely a, a hazard factor with creeper waves or, you know, just you got it's dangerous too. You have shears in your hand and it's slippery and you've got this heavy sack of, of algae in the other. and got to be on your toes. True, yes. But there's giggling. I mean, it's just fun and it's gorgeous. You know, it's a really stunning time of the day and the sun is just coming up over the hills behind you and... Um, there's a lot of critters out and a lot of other um, sea creatures kind of get trapped in these little tide pools. And so it's a chance to see of um, different octopus or abalone. And um, but It's such an interesting place because it really is the, the, the transition from land to sea. And there's so much in that little zone. I was going to ask you, what are some interesting critters that you've seen? You mentioned abalone and octopus. Yeah. Have you ever been surprised? Like, what is this? Um, Maybe more with like trash that sh- shows up from mm. ships and different shaped metal things and things that look dangerous or glass things. Um, but yeah, certainly a lot of the sea creatures are curious and the, the nudibranchs and the sea, or the cucumbers, they're gigantic and just wonder what is it? We, I don't have all those that, all the answers. And I brought a little laminate that some of the like nature centers give out of what, what are these creatures that you go when you go tide pooling, some identification. Nice. Have you ever had any accidents out there? Mm, gotten wet leg. Yeah, that's pretty common. Just slip in or that's the extra great seaweed is, you know, across this pool. So you're like, I'm going in. But what? it's fine. You know, it's yeah. it's enjoyable still. So let's talk about some of the species. Do you have some names of which ones you're going for? Yeah, we do. Um, I collect four or five varieties primarily, and those are historically used by different cultures and recipes, and they are, have nutritional quality, and they, they have nice texture in the mouth. Um, the five kinds that we collect, um, people are definitely familiar with nori. That's kind of the beginner. We call it the, the gateways gateway seaweed because it's so mild and it's one people are familiar with through sushi and those flat sheets and um, so the nori is real common um, that one's highest in protein actually so it's it's great we were mentioning the different protein sources as the show right before this and be if one is vegan or um, vegetarian this is a great protein source now when that is on the rocks is it is this I think I know which species this is when you're out and it seems to grow early in the spring and it's really light and lettucey on the rocks is that what the one or is it thicker there well it um yes it is it's on the rocks right near the sand it's on the very high tidal area uh, it's very iridescent extremely and it's very thin it's one cell thick which is really astounding for an algae to have that much um, mass and you know, cohesion among their cells. Um, it's it's not green. It's a kind of it's being iridescent. It's it's more I guess in the brown range. Um, mm-hmm. There is one called sea lettuce. Mm-hmm. Maybe that's like, the one I'm thinking about. Um, so the another kind we collect a lot of is kombu. That one is actually the one I cook the most with at home. It's it's it's, it's in most abundance on our shore as well. Um, so luckily that's the one that's popular with with a lot of buyers. Um, and then bladder rack, which has a peculiar name, and its Latin name fucus isn't isn't much better. But uh, bladder rack, it's it's sought after by the herbalists. It has the highest level of iodine. Um, it's it's real strong. It's a it would it's a little high impact on a meal on a dish. So I would add just a little bit, or people tincture it or put it in capsules, so it kind of bypasses your your taste buds. Is <laughs> another way. Um, and another variety we collect is wakame. 
That's um, it's commonly used in seaweed salads with um, toasted sesame oil. There's a different variety that that's used in Japan for the seaweed salads, but this one is a, a different um, species, but it's the same genus. Um, and then the last one is sea palm. Uh, it's it's a very delicious. It's great raw um, or fresh dried. You don't need, needn't add it to a dish. Um, some people call it uh, what's the other name? Sea frills or sea ribbons, um, and it, it's the one that's restricted, actually, um, by uh, harvest by if a non-caring, non-licensed harvesters. Um, so those are the five kinds: nori, kombu, bladderwrack, wakame, and sea palm. So you mentioned some uses for each of them, and some of them are really tasty just to eat on their own, and some of them are used more as a kind of an additional thing to a dish. What are some of the properties that something like bladder rack might bring to a dish? or And what type of dishes? Are we talking like soups, beans? I've read that it helps break down the um, fiber in beans. To- sure. Yeah, that's the kombu specifically is known to add to a dish of beans as you begin cooking. Um, it makes them more digestible, which inhibits the, the gas effect, which will break that down. And um, it also has a, a really neat quality of the kombu. It's a, a thickener. It's kind of its mucilaginous quality, which isn't that sexy of a word, but it, that kind of goes out in the sauce and makes it real. Instead of watery, it makes it more congealed and makes Ooh, it a, a I denser. need this in my tomato sauce then because Perfect. my homemade tomato sauce is to, very watery. <laughs> uh, yes. So, I mean, I don't really use it as like I don't have specific seaweed recipes. I, I continue with doing cooking the way I have, but I add it to every dinner in some fashion. Definitely the kombu goes in all kind of soups and stews, goes in chili, curries, chicken soup. Um, have tomato soup, uh, and so that's the kombu. It's really easy to add. And the nori, I uh, toast, and then that takes out the last bit of moisture, and then it turns into this really fine kind of black tissue paper that just shatters into the fine flake. And that's really easy to add to dishes, kind of scatter on top, or it dissolves really readily into grain, and it it's real mild. Um, so I have a little bowl of that in the kitchen that I use just to kind of add to dishes because some of the forms as it comes out of the ocean are a little difficult to work with. It's They're bigger pieces and they need to get chopped up or soaked a little bit. Wow. I think I've seen it in gomasio, like a little, Correct. like a shakes mm-hmm. with sesame seeds and some salt and right. some of the nori. Yeah, sesame seed toasted nori as well. And it adds a neat flavor. The, it, the nori changes color to this um, kind of a green Real dark, deep, deep green, and it, it it's more tasty after you toast it, and then it crumples down, yeah, into a fine flake, and you can add different, different others. You know, I've heard people add nettle and cayenne to the little mix. So one thing that's interesting about nori, it's that I see this sold in Trader Joe's and all the other stores and these crazy amounts of plastic packaging, obviously, to keep it really dry. But when you open up the package, it's like just a little bit. And I'm always like, I can't buy this. It's just way too much packaging. And this is exciting to hear. You can just get this locally and dry it on your own. But how would you add that um, that special seasoning that makes that so savory and good? I mean, would you dry it first or would you put it with some sesame oil and salt and then dry it? Or how would you do that? Yeah, making those sheets of paper, I wish it would come out of the ocean just like that. <laughs> it, it looks quite different. It's like, a, like I said earlier, it's like a crumpled up pile of, of tissue paper. 
But making those sheets that are so delicious, it's like making paper, like we did when you were a kid, just kind of macerating it. Um, and then what well, that sometimes, unfortunately, that tasty element is MSG that's added. And Ooh. so, and they even says on some of the packaging, this is addictive. <laughs> but so just be mindful of what else has been added to that, those sheets of of nori sheets, but they are delicious. And it's a great way to allow a lot of kids are, they they ask for seaweed, they request it and want to bring it to school. And it's a hot item on the, on the schoolyard of trading. And it's, I mean, it's unheard of. I'd so not cool. see this trend coming. It's really cool that kids are getting that nutrition and familiar and uh, cool. Like to seaweed becomes a hip thing. That's awesome. For the folks just tuning in, this is you're listening, you're listening to Ocean Currents, and my guest in the studio today is Heidi Herman, and she is a co-owner of Strong Arm Farm, and we're talking about the seaweed har- seaweed harvesting that she does that she brings to her vegetable and herb farm um, throughout the year. So obviously, you have a license to harvest commercially, and it's said on your website that you are the only uh, permit holder in Sonoma County. As I'm surprised, actually. Or are there a limit to how many permits they give out? This is the state fish and wildlife that you get a permit from? Yeah. Um, there are some other holders of, the, of a license in our county. I'm the only one that sells it commercially. Uh-huh. In our county, I think there's like three or four. I asked the the folks at the Fish and Wildlife. Um, Mendocino has a lot more. Our coastlines are qu- quite similar. I mean, plant wise and the temperature of the water and the variety of plants. But um, there seems to be much more industry in that up there. Um, so there's a lot of there's a lot more competition and like. Uh, struggle to whose beaches are what and there's some some dispute <laughs> in Mendocino <laughs> yes but gosh I've never come across anybody harvesting seaweed in our coastline I, I give a lot of classes and workshops and so they, there's yeah the people with that skill go to there's so many beaches access along our coast so I guess I guess they go to other ones well, it's also a really rough coastline for the most part. Yeah. Sonoma County. Access is difficult. To get to. It's true. And that is perhaps, yeah, why our coast isn't as uh, prolific with harvesters. But uh, the quali- the quantities and qualities are, are there. The different varieties are really in high abundance. And that's part of, of harvesting is, is keeping an eye on what, what impact am I making here? Is this still a good choice? And some, I'm totally open to not harvesting one of these varieties if, if the populations are declining or there is our newsletters where I keep up and um, data from fish and wildlife that let you know kind of what's, if there's shifts in some of the populations. But um, the license enables me to harvest 2,000 pounds a day, which is extreme. I don't even harvest that in an entire year. But that quantity generally applies to larger vessel harvesting that's done on the different parts of our coastline and different parts of the world in general um, that haul in and, and harvest. Um, I know it's happening outside the Monterey area and I'm, you said I'm San not Diego. Sure, I'm not sure about Monterey, but I know in Southern mm-hmm. California, I used to live on Catalina Island and I remember hearing about these boats, Kelco, and they would they basically lawn mow the top of a kelp forest mm-hmm. and use the giant brown kelp for alginates. They'll take out the alginates that are used in a lot of different products that we use every day. Oh. But it seems to me a little bit more destructive because of all the life that is yeah. in there. So I don't I don't know a ton more about it, but that's another commercial permit, I guess. Yeah, it's the same permit. It's a collection of edible 
kelp. So it's $140 a year, approximately, and um, sign up for a calendar year. And I report every month how much I harvest and pay a oh two cents on um, per pound that I harvest, which comes to like two dollars or something. That's amazing. So in terms of you've visited probably certain sites year after year and maybe even season after season. And suppose so you go in and you probably how do you go about um, harvesting? Do you kind of try to select different areas at a beach? Do you see like a bunch of sea palms and cut them all there? Or how do you kind of spread it out when you're collecting to minimize your impact? Right. It's a it's some. Definitely something I've taken a lot of notes and observation because I usually bring some helpers with me. So it's monitoring what, what's everyone doing on the crew, who's picking what, and we, what kind of impact are we making? Will these plants regenerate? Not, I mean, for not just for my personal, are they going to be here next year when I want to harvest? But also, is this the only genetic species on this entire beach that's not the, that I'm not going to harvest from this? this is, but it's it's a personal judgment. There there isn't enough or the. Regulation, I should say. There's not enough regulation on, on how much or how to harvest, which is there, – there's a gap there. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's kind of assessing – different beaches have different kind of populations uniquely. And I take little notes on which I have names for the different beaches since they don't – they're just kind of pullouts on off-highway one of where to go down. And um, it, within each of those, some do have a higher populations of, say, the nori or wakame. And well, those notes are really helpful of where to go if I want to collect a certain volume. And we'll go to certain beaches. Um, this is our great nori beach, for instance, and collect volumes of that. That'll be our whole nori supply for the year. And or you know, and it would shift for year to year. Um, sea palm is, as you mentioned, is is unique, and that one isn't as plentiful on our coastline, and it's restrictive, restricted. And it's actually very hard to get to because it's in the high impact kind of coast or wave impact zone. So it usually takes some scrambling and there's there's some risk. And um, and how to harvest is so crucial. That's exactly why it's become extinct or it's declining populations is due to cutting right at the stipe and that kills the plant. So it's a very uh, – precise site where it gets cut. And so the cells, those that Mary stem tissues will can regenerate and within that season grow again. We do go to some beaches um, again, and it's been really interesting to see how much they grow within two, one like tide cycle or one like low tide. We go, we go 28 days apart and something, you know, there's been inches of growth and it's, it's really fantastic to see the plants can rebound within that one season. And even, for they're large plants with a really strong base. They're perennials, a lot of them, and so they shoot out this like many fifteen ten branches of long arms that go into a tide pool and and not to clear cut that shrub. <laughs> I treat it like like right. landscaping in a sense. So just cut the tips or of some of them and leaving more than half still on the plant for them to still spore that year. And it, perhaps it is a, has gene, unique genetic features and to not eliminate that diversity in a crowd. 
Interesting. You mentioned two words, stipe and meristem, and those are some parts of the algae. And the stipe is, what I understand, is the part that attaches to the base on the rock and then brings up the fruiting body, the, the leafy part on top. Mm-hmm. And then where are the spores? Are the spores in the leaves? They're on the leaf. And a lot of the leaves also have this uh, ballast, like a balloon feature that, that holds air, and that keeps them up high in the kind of the water profile as the water rises or the tide rises above the tide pool, it keeps them up in the higher levels. And so they can absorb that sunlight and photosynthesize. And so there's a real purpose to those those uh, bubbles that some yeah. people stomp on and make sounds. I bet you, I'm curious if there's anybody that's done research about the cementing property of the the holdfast that really holds onto the rocks because they that's endure right. such a tremendous wave action. And you know, for the most part, really can hold on to those rocks. There must be some interesting (sighs) properties to that. And the Mary stem, is that, that, is that a, what is that? Um, Land plants have it as well. It's, it's the center. It's kind of like the, the brain of cell division. Like it, it it decides if there's more leaf, it, it makes shoots, it makes flowers. It's kind of this center. And there is a lot of sites of Mary stem around the plant. It's it's just a type of cell that can re- that can reproduce itself. I see. So it's kind of like a sensor taking into account what's going on. If there's yeah. not enough, I'm just thinking of my garden, and when I don't water enough, they things start to slow down or shrink up a little bit, and the Mary stem is kind of taking in all this information and then basically uh, reacting, yes. responding. Correct. Interesting. Very interesting. So this is so cool. I'm loving listening to this conversation about. Or, talking in the conversation about seaweed because it's just such a fascinating um, habitat and species to visit on the coast and that there are a lot of food elements that we can enjoy from harvesting it. I think we're going to take a short break here in a minute. For those tuning in, this is Ocean Currents, and my guest here is Heidi Herman, and we've been talking about seaweed harvesting. And we're going to take a short musical break, and we'll be back in just a moment to continue the conversation. We're back here. You're tuned to Ocean Currents here at KWMR, Point Ray Station, and Bellinas. And I have a guest in the studio today, Heidi Herman. And we've been talking about seaweed harvesting and talking about the food properties, collection, um, all the different ins and outs of collecting algae. I wanted to just get back to a couple things before we go into how, how can I go out and collect seaweed. But you were talking about where to go. And there might be some jurisdictional um, boundaries. So we are located here at Point Reyes National Seashore. Are there any collection issues collecting here at Point Reyes National Seashore? Um, since it is a par- is national state park? Federal park. Federal park. Um, you cannot take anything from a state park um, or federal park. So the, you can't take anything from the shore and once it's washed up. But that jurisdiction changes at the high tide line. So if you go on a low tide, you can technically harvest from the shore rocks when the tide is out and cutting it from the plants and 
taking it back onto land is okay. But it, you cannot take things that have washed up. And those you wouldn't want to take anyways and eat, whether it's – you wouldn't want to eat them in the first place. But even for your garden, that's – I it's they're lighter. At other beaches, you can go and take the stuff from the shore, and that's fine. But it's definitely not on state and federal beaches. That's good to know. You are collecting on the Sonoma Coast, and there's a lot of Sonoma Coast State Beach. So do you have to stay below the height? The, below that line? Correct. And that's when we go out. Low so it's, tide. Yeah. Got so it. we go, yeah, the lowest tides of the year are in May and June. They're equally in, in December, but it's, it, there's a couple reasons why we don't harvest in December. First, it's, they happen in the dark usually, and it's icy cold, colder than in the June. And then the drying of it, we dry outside, we let the sun take care of that. And so that would be prohibitive in December. And it's and the plants too. They, they have their life cycle of when they're optimal and when they'll regrow and when they're, they're looking their healthiest. And that's in June when they receive the most light and they're responding to that time of year. And they still have a chance to regenerate and it's before they spore. So. Interesting. And also, there's been a lot of processes um, in the state, especially locally here. The state put in a series of marine protected areas, and those just went into effect a couple years ago that include the Sonoma Coast stretch. And how are you involved or aware about that process? And that would definitely restrict access. True. There are, um, in our county, I believe there's two marine protected areas, and one is around Bodega Head, and the second is um, around the mouth of the Russian River. I think there's another one actually up in Fort Ross area. Um, Stewart's Point, I think. Yes, yeah. Salt Point region. Um, those, uh, so you, you cannot collect seaweed in those regions. Um, they're intended to, to re, kind of rehabitate and not to have any extraction of abalone, fish, or, sea, or algae. Um, so it's b- being mindful of where those borders are. Um, the beaches that I go at are between that. There's most of the accessible and beach beaches that I would go to regardless are don't aren't in these zones. Um, the one around Bodega Head, the beaches are totally inaccessible there. So it's it's a great spot to have this protected area that are that's naturally protected from humans. Um, so good a, placement. Yeah, and those maps are online, um, easily found on the Fish and Wildlife site. Um, yeah, you can just Google them and find them. Um, so how about for everyday people? You have a permit because you sell your product that you collect, but can anybody go collect seaweed and do we need to have a license to harvest it? Right. Um, regular citizens, um, you can collect 10 pounds a day with no license, no paperwork at all. So 10 pounds is, is pretty sizable. It's about the size of a grocery bag full. Um, it may be enough for the year's supply. Um, if you wish to harvest more, then you need to apply for this annual permit, which I said was $140 from Fish and Wildlife, and and then report monthly what you what your take is. So, and when you collect, this is something I should have asked earlier, but when you harvest something and bring it back, are you using the whole plant, or do you ever have to, have to trim off pieces, or do you dry the whole entire plant that you've collected? Um, we only collect what we are going to to need at home. This double handling is is 
More work. More work, yes. But it's also wasteful. Like, leave that at the ocean or leave it on the plant, preferably. So just harvest what's needed. It's usually the tips. Sometimes there's a little um, tattered part of the tip or a secondary algae that's kind of taken hold on on a frond of a kombu. So we'll cut that off. I prefer to leave that at the ocean and let it just get reabsorbed into mm-hmm. that scene and be food for someone else. So they don't need, we don't need a license to collect up to 10 pounds a day, but probably should have some knowledge of what we're collecting after. Are there any sources of information online or classes that you teach, actually? I know you teach locally, that people can learn more to get information about harvesting. Right. That's the, the real clincher. There's, it's, it's accessible and it's fun to go out, but how to harvest specifically and, and identification of which, which species are what and how do I not kill this plant? So it's, um, I teach a class through a group called Daily Axe. I believe their website's dailyaxe.org. And they teach a lot of sustainability workshops. Um, it's an evening lecture and a Saturday foray that we go out and we harvest together. Um, that's usually in May or June of each year. Um, another, There's a couple other ca- locations that have this very similar class. There's one that's California School of Herbal Studies that has the same model, the lecture evening that answers a lot of the questions and then the, the go out as a group together. Um, another group is the RDI. They're right here in Marin County in Bolinas, the Regenerative Design Institute, and they teach this kind of combination lecture foray. Um, I'm going to be doing one at a new location this year at the Fort Ross Visitor Center. It's up on the north end of, of Sonoma County's coast. And they sell my seaweed in the visitor center, and we're going to go out to some new new sites. There. That's really cool. Lots of, so that keeps you busy, all these classes, in addition yep. to maintaining a farm at the back in Healdsburg yep. and then going out to the ocean, too. So... Basically, what would be the most important tool besides, obviously, this knowledge of how to harvest and which species, but what do you collect with? Is it just a basic knife or a specific type of... Right. Um, What do you do? You can certainly just bring scissors along. It's nice to have hands-free when you're traveling the coast or, you know, it's very slippery. It's nice to have kind of both hands available if you need to brace yourself if you fall. Um, I like something that has a little holster. And so I commonly use Felcos. It's this red-handled shears that gardeners use. And that's what I use all day at the farm. And it's just, it's always at my hip. And so that's handy. So you can just put the shear away and collect or, you know, brace yourself as you're moving through that tidal zone. Um, So it's just something that's sharp that you can put away. Um, You can use a regular knife that has like a sheath on it, a plastic or leather. Um, But some sort of holster is handy. But yeah, just some scissors. It's very easy to cut through. Um, It's like plant material. It's it's like cutting a a tomato branch. (laughs) Yeah, pretty soft. Really cool. How about, let's go back to some of the herbal properties. You mentioned that a couple times, and I understand there's different nutritional values, a lot of protein, some vitamins, but how about some of the herbal properties of some of these species? What, and how do we learn this? This You mentioned some traditional cultures. So I imagine this is early culture values and knowledge that's been passed down and continued to be used, but how, how do we, how do we use algae with herbal tinctures and vitamins or 
Right. There is a lot of um, American history and of international that have used seaweed in a lot of different ways and forms. Um, I try to gather as much information as I can of how the our, our local na- Indians and um, Native populations have used it. The Pomo Kashaya tribe has a long history, and certain tribes would go at certain times of the year and, and gain access and trade with that as a real uh, nutrient source to bring into the in inland um, populations. Um, but they also used the seaweed in places in Denmark. I did some, did some research, and they used it as thatch for roofs, which was really peculiar. And it's about a foot thick. And when it starts to rain, it swells up, and that creates the seal on, out of, on the house, which is really clever because you work with your, what you have in your region. But in Ireland, is also a lot of seaweed use. Um, nutritionally, they have spas over there that that they warm it, and you can immerse yourself into this seaweed broth of sorts. Um, <laughs> the Asian cultures are huge and, and still have massive consumption of it. Um, there's huge farms, production farms, similar to the oyster raising that we have in our bay here, of these racks that kind of suspend in the ocean, and they they rely on the tides of going in and out and um, they kind of seed these racks and, and they're able to harvest a lot more from creating more surface area for this algae to grow upon. But nutritionally, um, iodine is a, is a real high nutrient that's difficult to acquire in other species, other kind of food sources. And so some people that have a thyroid challenges, um, they're, they're advised to consume more iodine because it's a nutrient that we process through and need a, a steady supply of um, the bladder rack um, algae is particularly high in that, although they're all pretty similar. They're just a per- couple percentage points off of what their nutrients that the, each one excels in. So the bladder rack is sought by herbalists that will tincture it out and just for that, um, for thyroid maintenance particularly. Interesting. But they have a lot of ca- calcium and niacin and thiamine and... Um, nutrients that are hard to get in other vegetables? True. Yeah, especially um, land plants. As our soil is becoming more depleted in in mainstream agriculture and not as enriched, the food will reflect that as well. And uh, this is a great source, and it's tasty, and and especially in its small quantities, it really just adding a tiny bit to a dish will really boost the nutritional content and capacity of that dish. Well, thank you, by the way, for bringing in this nice bag of kombu. I'm really excited to make it. I'll be making a lot of soups coming up in these next few weeks, and to try it out and yeah, I, I, I sell it. it in little one ounce packets like this in plastic, unfortunately, but it's a sealed so it doesn't absorb moisture of its environment. And this usually this lasts a, a few months, um, this supply in a, in a kitchen, but it will last you also 10 years. It's in its most stable form, which is real interest. You know, that a what else can can has that capacity? It's it's there are elements in the periodic table. They're not degrading any further. They're they're stable and no so, preservatives needed. No, they've already got their own salts. Amazing seaweed. So on your website, you have a nice uh, PDF available that talks about the um, uses and some local varieties that are. Oh, here are the species names. I got it. Periphera laminaria. Fucus, these are names I'm, I'm somewhat familiar with. But you also have some recipes on the back. And what, can you just give everybody the name of your website that people can find this? Sure, happily. It's uh, strongarmfarm.com. Um, and we have a e- Gmail. It's strongarmfarm at Gmail if you wish to have, if, contact me if you have more questions. But yeah, at Strongarm, the, there's a PDF 
with information about its general nutrition and then its its use in the kitchen. Um, and body care, people use it as kind of face masks, and it's it's really there's one variety called Turkish towel that's exfoliating. It has this kind of rough, oh, the um, little bumps on it. Yes, it has oh. this neat quality that that uh, while it's um, you can it absorbs water really quickly, so it rehydrates into its its size that it is at the ocean, and then you can rub it on your skin, and it your skin is absorbing those minerals through dermal absorption, and you're exfoliating at the same time. Or a powder, too, is a real nice um, kind of softener of skin. And then in the garden, too, of course, um, it's a kelp emulsion is commonly used. It's it's fairly cheap in one-gallon jugs. Um, So I use a lot of that fresh from what I harvest and buy the jugs of it. Um, It is short in nitrogen, interestingly. So it has a whole spectrum of all the other minerals that plants need. Um, but not nitrogen. So that's where the fish emulsion comes in that, that's particularly high in the end, the nitrogen. So the two of those together is a real balanced meal for your plants. How do you make a kelp emulsion? Is it basically dried that you soak or you chop it into small bits and pieces? Or how do you make that? Yeah, there would be some some fine blending involved. <laughs> I don't know, emulsifying uh, or, you know, just macerating. I don't quite know how they keep it in suspension and keep it from rotting. That's a different element. So they probably dry it. I'm just thinking, I know I've seen the kelp emulsion before at uh, in certain products at gardening stores, and I wondered what it, what exactly is in there besides just what form in the kelp is in. Is it dried or chopped up in pieces? Or Now, I've actually, so something traditional that I grew up with was my mom used eelgrass that had washed up on the beach, was all brown and dried up mm-hmm. at certain beaches, and... From my memory, I don't believe these were protected places because this was Long Island. There weren't too many protected places. But um, we would use it. She'd put it in the garden as a mulch. Terrific. And, and what? so I'm imagining that that's good for keeping, reducing water evaporation, but and it also decays into the soil and helps add some nutrients back right. to the soil. Yeah, sometimes I add it just on top of plants as, that you hand water. I put it in house plants a little bit. I put a little section in a watering can and let that kind of soak overnight and then... Every time I fill the watering can, it kind of it, more minerals come out. Um, when I'm planting a bare root tree, I'll put some in the base of the hole, or uh, some people drape it around the yeah necklace of a tree. It's kind of a cute aesthetic. And the animals, our dog eats it off the ground, so we have to actually bury it because the dog oh, s- seeks the nutrients and really delights over seaweed. <laughs> Do you rinse it first to get the salts off before the garden application? No. And it's what we consider, it's it's actually low in sodium chloride, it, the salt that's that we don't want too much of in our diet. But it, it's those other spectrum of minerals, the, the phosphorus, the calcium, that show up as kind of a white crust, but it's not a true, it's not sodium. It's, so it's, it, it it can't get toxic of that specific specific mineral, um, but that whole spectrum of, of nutrients is kind of referred to as the salts because they they have that kind of white they have that sensation in our mouths as well. Uh, but and it would take a lot of it to really damage the roots, I guess, or slow down. Yeah, roots. Our, all that rinse water that I was talking about earlier, we douse our garden with that, and there's been no signs of white crust or toxicity, or it's just the opposite. The plants are totally thriving in that section that we dump a lot of this rinse water out, and all the little segments 
Well, that's good to know because I I think I've been rinsing mine and no probably need. wasting water. <laughs> and it dissolves immediately. Those are nutrients that are coming out in that water. And just water the houseplants with them and feed it to the, the pets. Now, I want to make sure I, I have this clear um, because in case other people are going to run out to the beaches now and start collecting eelgrass. So people can't collect seaweed that's washed up on the beach dead in a protected place, either an MPA Correct. or a federal land like a national seashore here. And I don't, I'm don't. i not familiar with state park regulations. No take. No take of seaweed that's washed up on right. the beach. But you can go below low tide, below the high tide line. Correct. And collect if it's washed up uh-huh. or collect it even if it's live, except you said eelgrass is a protected species. It is. Um, not totally sure why. There's not that much on our Sonoma coast, um, and it's a little coarse. It's not something that I would actually be tempted to eat. Um, it's mainly in the estuarine area, so Tomales uh-huh. Bay. I've never seen it actually outside the bay. I've seen surf oh. grass, oh. the phyllospadics outside, oh. but um, eelgrass is in estuarine and mm-hmm. then in the esteros as well. Yes. So really vital habitat for species and fish. So that's probably why it's protected. And when you're out there, I mean, there are, there's no toxic seaweeds out there. What we recognize as, as kelp that's brown or, you know, it's kind of a brown algae that we see in the ocean. Those are all edible. Um, some might be more more coarse in the mouth or more chewy or more slimy. But give it a try. See what, what, what flavors work for you. And, and when they have the salt water on them, they're really tasty. I always am snacking the whole time I'm harvesting and trying different kinds and I really like the bladder rack when it's raw, right out of the ocean. But once it dries, it really takes on a real strong kind of harbor flavor. Yeah, I remember one that was very peppery. Oh, I remember. is a red algae, very thin. This was in Southern California. We used to taste it, and it's very peppery. It was a red uh, I can't remember because this has been years, but I remember we used to taste it with the kids. I used to teach at a Marine Science Institute, and we had all the kids try them. Well, really cool. Heidi, this has been so fascinating. Are there any other pieces of information you want to share or sources of information? Mm, yeah, where to get? There's a limited supply uh, information on, online of, of sources. The, I think there's a seaweed industry website that has a pretty comprehensive list of all the varieties um, and where they exist in the world. And um, there, Yeah, even on each of our coastlines on the East Coast, there's different varieties that prefer that 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 climate and that's the temperature of water over there um our coastline is pretty why is our coastline so rich is that there it's so cold and cold water is able to hold more oxygen and that oxygen is support for these plants that are photosynthesizing these algaes and so that that enables the the diversity and the health of these plants and so perhaps as as temperatures shift there'll be a shift in what species can be supported with different oxygen levels and different temperatures so they're very um, in what's it um, indigenous or you know localized to our location due to all these factors. So shift in intertidal species. Yeah, they've already seen a shift in um, animal species in intertidal mm-hmm. zones. Different species are coming cr- further north now, mm-hmm. and I know there's a lot of intertidal monitoring going to see how species that are typically in the lower lower intertidal are they going to be able to adapt and migrate to a higher intertidal level it'll be really interesting to see but specifically with algae too well fantastic are you going to post the classes that you're going to be teaching on your website yes we usually schedule them in around february or so of each year and yeah look from at at any of these locations i mentioned earlier they'll be in the kind of the may june time and again your website is strongarmfarm.com correct 
and all the classes will be there. And people can also go there to download this special information sheet that is put together that talks a little bit about the seaweeds that you can collect, uses, some recipes, and you can, too, harvest from the shores, as long as you're not in a national park or a state park. (laughs) Well, thanks again, Heidi, for coming in to KWMR. Thanks as well. So, folks, we're going to take a quick, short musical break. I'll be back to wrap up the show. But we've been talking with Heidi Herman from Strongarm Farm and talking about seaweed harvesting here on Ocean Currents. Stay with us. to Ocean Currents. We've been talking about seaweed harvesting today on the show. Really, really interesting and wonderful way to access the sea and enjoy the intertidal zone and have some healthful food collection at the same time, as long as you follow the rules. First off, this is the last show of 2013, and I hope you all have fantastic holidays Ocean Currents will continue through the new year in 2014, the first Monday of every month between 1 and 2, part of the West Marin Matters series. And we have a podcast, and you can catch all the past episodes at the Cordell Bank website, Cordell, C-O-R-D-E-L-L-B-A-N-K dot N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. Just look under the education tab. And you can see all the shows from the very beginning um, and listen to them online or subscribe to the podcast and, and get them through iTunes. I love hearing from listeners. So please, if you can, send me an email, or comments, questions, future show topics. I'd love to hear from you. My email is jennifer.stock, S-T-O-C-K, at N-O-A-A dot G-O-V. And next month, January 6th, fresh off with the new year, I will have a guest, Matt Vieta, who is with the Bay Area Underwater Explorers Group. It's a nonprofit group, and they do some really interesting high-tech diving expeditions. And they recently dove at Cordell Bank off the shores of Point Reyes, which is pretty pretty rare. And they had a successful experience, and they've shared some wonderful, wonderful images and video with us at the sanctuary. And those I'm slowly posting on our Facebook page and on our website. So you'll see more of those in the future. But thank you so much for tuning in today to Ocean Currents and supporting KWMR. And I wish you all fantastic holidays. Thank you for listening to Ocean Currents. This show is brought to you by NOAA's Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary on West Marin Community Radio, KWMR. Views expressed by guests on this program may or may not be that of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration and are meant to be educational in nature. To learn more about Cordell Bank National Marine Sanctuary, go to cordellbank.noaa.gov.